This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we will begin our study. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity to fellowship together around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the provision of your word, which is absolute truth, as a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. Father, we pray that you would enable us to understand the things that we study today and to see how they relate to our own thinking, that we may be challenged by God the Holy Spirit as we study your word. Father, we also continue to pray for our nation, for our president, for our national leaders, that you would guide and direct them. And above all, we trust in you for our security as a nation, that we may continue to send forth missionaries and continue to be a support for Israel in the Middle East. Now, Father, as we come before your word, we pray that we might be able to focus and concentrate, set aside the cares and worries and uh, plans of the day, that we may be able to focus and learn what we need to learn from your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to hit a milestone in our ministry at Preston City Bible Church. Since I came five and a half years ago, we have been studying in the second hour on Sunday morning, the first the Gospel of John and then the Epistles of John. So we have been immersed in Johannine theology for five and a half years, and this morning we are going to bring that to a close. We will finish the third epistle of John this morning, and then we will begin a new series next Sunday morning. And so you will have to be there, be here next time to find out where we're going next. Third John, as we have seen, is really the tale of two Christians. It is the tale of Gaius, who is an individual member of a local church, uh, where we do not know. The size of the church we do not know, other than they do not have a full-time resident pastor. The pastor is the Apostle John, who refers to himself as the elder in verse 1. 
Uh, this church, therefore, is probably a small house church. It could have been in Laodicea, Colossae, uh, any number of towns, Pergamum, any of the other small towns in what was called Asia Minor province in the western part of what is now modern Turkey. John, the apostle, was a absentee pastor. That's not unusual. We see that. We've seen that in our own history in the United States. In fact, it still goes on where there are many churches, not always much uh, smaller than Preston City Bible Church, where they cannot afford to have their own full-time pastor. So there may be in certain areas two or three churches that share a pastor, and the pastor may go to one church for an 8 o'clock service, and then he may drive an hour or two to another church and pastor there and have a late morning service and then travel another distance to another church and, and preach at the evening service. And this would happen especially in frontier times where you would be uh, not have enough people in any community to take care of their own pastor, and so there would be itinerant ministers, and they would ride on horseback from one community to another. They couldn't get there as rapidly as we do today, so they would preach in one church one Sunday, and then the next church in another community the next Sunday, and then another community the next Sunday. And in between, they would have lay teachers, or sometimes they would read Bible studies that had been uh, printed up by a denominational uh, publishing house, uh, whatever it was. It was a non-face-to-face teaching ministry, and that was the kind of situation that we have in both Second John and Third John. But there's a problem in this church, and it's a people problem, and that is not unusual in churches. Uh, we have been very fortunate here at Preston City Bible Church, uh, not only in the five and a half years that I've been here, but also in uh, the years preceding that there really haven't been this kind of problem. I have pastored in congregations where you have uh, prima donnas in the congregation, where you have individuals who want to uh, run the church, who want to be in competition with the pastor, who think that they know more, and in some cases they might even know more. I mean, that happens in some churches, especially where you have a young pastor or a rookie pastor. Uh, there may be people in the congregation who know a lot more than the pastor does because they are mature believers who've been sitting under sound teaching for many years, and yet they have some young, wet-behind-the-ears, recently ordained pastor come into the pulpit, and they have to extend a certain amount of grace and humility uh, toward that young pastor because uh, he's learning. And as he's going through the process of learning and developing his own uh, pulpit personality, and as he's going through the process of getting into the Word and his own spiritual growth, and older mature believers can be a source of encouragement. Unfortunately, what you have in many cases is, is older mature believers who are really into reversionism, and that comes out right in the middle of this kind of a situation, and suddenly they want to run things in the church. And that is... Uh, somewhat similar to what we have in the second personality of this epistle, and that is Diotrephes. Gaius is the first. He is the uh, member of the congregation who is positive, growing. Uh, we've seen, uh, we've looked at his character, and in contrast you have Diotrephes who is out of fellowship, operating on 
arrogance, wants to be in the limelight, wants to run things, and is indeed uh, running things. He's bullying the congregation. He is the one who is uh, calling the shots. And yet it is to Gaius that John, the apostle, must address this epistle because uh, Diotrephes is negative to the truth and negative to uh, John's authority. So we'll begin this morning with just a brief review contrasting the characters of Gaius and Diotrephes. They stand for two different kinds of Christians. Gaius is for the positive believer who is advancing towards spiritual maturity, has a positive attitude towards the Word, and is applying it consistently in his life. On the other hand, you have Diotrephes, who is the poster uh, child of arrogance and the arrogant skills and the consequences of arrogance on a local congregation. Well, we've seen Gaius. He's positive to the truth. This is a key word in this epistle. And as I have said several times, this word is used uh, six different times in this epistle or actually seven different times in this epistle. Uh, Gaius is said to be the one whom John loves in truth. He has uh, been visited by uh, various itinerant uh, missionaries and evangelists, and they report that, that the truth is in him. He is firm in his doctrine. The word truth here recalls to mind two things. It recalls to mind the doctrine that is embedded in Scripture, the Word of God. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. But there's an interesting word play on that because Jesus himself says that he, Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. And he, Jesus, is also referred to by the Apostle John as the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there is an interrelationship between the written word and the living word, Jesus Christ, and the written word is indeed the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, 16. So Gaius has a positive uh, attitude to the truth and to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he is walking by means of truth, and he is demonstrating the character of Christ in terms of his humility and in terms of his priorities. His priority is on the teaching of the Word and supporting the teaching of the Word so that when uh, various uh, itinerant evangelists and missionaries came through the area, it was Gaius who would make sure they were taken care of. He made sure all their needs were taken care of. He would open up his home to them and, and take care of them, recognizing that, that any time you have missionaries who have given up and been willing to sacrifice so much in terms of creature comforts in order to tr- be constantly on the road, constantly traveling, constantly operating in a difficult cross-cultural situation that it should be uh, incumbent upon other believers to make sure that they are taken care of in an honorable manner. In contrast to him, we have Diotrephes who won't even receive these itinerant uh, ministers and those who wish to support them, uh, he puts out of the church. We saw that in verse 10. So from the character of each, we see that Gaius is positive. He's grace-oriented. He understands the grace of God, and he is willing to extend that same grace toward 
uh, others, even if he doesn't know them. That's the operation of impersonal love for all mankind. But his application of impersonal love is based upon his love for God, his personal love for God, and that is always the way it is. Your impersonal love for others must be based on your personal love for God, not the other way around. Because you and I cannot have real virtue in our love because so often we are operating on our sin nature and uh, carnality inserts itself into the various things that we do. So we must put the motivation on that which never changes, the immutable character of God. So for our love to have virtue, it must be based upon God who alone has virtue and the work of Christ on the cross. That becomes our motivation. The more we come to understand who God is and what Christ has done for us, then the more we are motivated in terms of impersonal love for others because we realize that they're, no matter how unlovely they may be, no matter how obnoxious they may be, no matter how attractive they may appear to be, we recognize we're all in the same boat, And as far as God is concerned, we're all equally obnoxious. We're all equally offensive to God because of our sin, and yet he dealt with us not on the basis of who and what we are, but on the basis of who he is and what Christ did on the cross. That is the model then for impersonal love. We treat people on the basis of who God is and what Christ did on the cross. Once we lose that motivation, then we're operating on subjectivity. So Gaius's impersonal love for all mankind was demonstrated through his support of missionaries, missions, and evangelism. Uh, your desire to witness is, in many cases, directly proportional to your impersonal love for all mankind because you think in, of people in terms of their eternal destiny, not in terms of uh, how they treat you, not in terms of how attractive or unattractive they are, but in terms of the fact that they are an individual human being created in the image and likeness of God, that apart from Jesus Christ, they are uh, on a one-way destiny to the lake of fire and eternal condemnation, and that part of your individual responsibility as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ, is to make the gospel clear to those who are lost. You can't make them believe. You can't force them to believe. You can't pray to God to make them believe or force them to believe because God is not going to reach down and tweak their volition. All we can do is make the gospel clear. That takes all the pressure off. You're not going to convince them of the truth of the gospel. That's the role of God the Holy Spirit, John 16, 7, and 8. Your job and my job is simply to make the issue as clear as we can, and that is part of our impersonal love for all mankind. Gaius demonstrates this. What we learn from Gaius is that he is involved in Christian service in relationship to the evangelists and missionaries coming through his area. The principle that we've noted again and again and again is that Christian service is not a means to spiritual growth, but that Christian service is the result of spiritual growth. As you, The more you grow, the more you mature, the more you realize that we have responsibilities and obligations within the body of Christ. We can't just sit back and let everybody else do all the work. Christian service is a recognition of one's own responsibilities in the body of 
Christ. That relates to the giving of one's time, talent, and treasure. We have to give up of time sometimes, a good Saturday morning when we need to have a work day down at the church and get things done. Everybody needs to be involved in this. It's not something for one or two people. And usually we have pretty good participation when we have a work day. Uh, we need to give up of our talent because there's many different things that need to be done around the local church. It's not necessarily just teaching and prep school, but there are different things that can be done, uh, things that be, can be done in relationship to the media ministry, things that can be done just in terms of, of the general external appearance of the church. We don't hire a janitor or gardening service, and we have different people who give up their time to cut the grass, rake the leaves, weed the flower beds, uh, make sure that uh, all the external appearance is taken care of, and that's important. And each of you have different things that you like to do in your own personal life, and there's usually some correlation to that in a local church ministry. The thing is that when you're in a small church, it's different from being in a large church. If you're in a large local church of two or three hundred people or more, then you have a much greater opportunity to be anonymous, to be obscure, to sit back in the corner somewhere, and nobody's ever going to know if you're involved in that local church because there tend to be so many more people that are, so you can just sort of slough off and act as if everything's just great and the church will go on without you. But when you're in a small congregation, you know, 30, 40 people, then you still have many of the same uh, obligations and needs and responsibilities and tasks that need to be fulfilled as a large church. But it puts more of a responsibility on each individual in a smaller congregation than a larger congregation. Small congregations can't afford to have people who simply want to hide in obscurity and anonymity. Now, that doesn't mean we go around twisting any arms or beating anybody over the head or making you feel guilty to do things, but it's important to recognize that Christian service is part of the responsibility that every believer has in relation to a local church. It's part of our ambassadorship. It's not simply uh, our ambassadorship is not simply related to witnessing. It is also related to Christian service in a local church. And that sometimes means that when you're in a small congregation and you have a need in prep school for a teacher, and you may not be the world's greatest teacher, you may not even like to teach, but you realize that you've been sitting here in a pew at Preston City Bible Church taken in doctrine for 20 years. You've got notebooks filled with doctrine. That means you have the capacity to teach in a prep school class. You have the the knowledge to do that. You may not be the world's greatest teacher, but we may not have the world's greatest teacher in Preston City Bible Church. So that means that it's up to you because the issue is not how well can you do it, but how willing are you to, to be involved and to take up the slack so that the whole church functions and operates together. And who knows, maybe you will discover that you have some hidden talent or ability. 
Now, in contrast to Gaius' willingness, his selflessness, his grace orientation, his understanding of, of what he can do as an ambassador for Christ in the local congregation, we have diatrophies. Now, these are really just, just polar extremes. Uh, whereas, Dio- uh, whereas Gaius is just an individual member of the church, he's somewhat anonymous because he's not out there in the limelight, but he is involved quietly, consistently in the background in terms of his realm of Christian service and hospitality, Diotrephes wants to be in the limelight. He loves, verse 9, he loves to have the preeminence among them, but he is antagonistic to the authority of the Apostle John. And every now and then you run into people who become antagonistic to the authority of a pastor. Now, normally I don't beat the drum about the authority of a pastor, but biblically speaking, a pastor is the leader of a congregation. That means he's the one the Lord has put in charge. It's something that's inherent in the whole uh, New Testament idea of a teacher, someone who taught, has authority because of, someone who taught had authority simply because of their position. It is an inherently authoritative position. The pastor is the leader. When you look at that term, pastor-teacher, the word pastor actually is the Greek word poimen for a shepherd. Now, it tells you right away we're dealing with a metaphor. Because the pastor isn't a literal shepherd. He is going to do to those people what a shepherd does to sheep. But let me illustrate. There are a lot of things that shepherds do to sheep that pastors don't do to people. So you have here I'll draw a circle on the overhead. And this describes all the different responsibilities of a shepherd. Now, shepherds get out there and they pick the ticks off a sheep and they do other unspeakable nasty things to sheep to make sure they're healthy. And But his prime, one of his primary things is he takes them to, to water and to the right uh, fields where they're going to uh, have nourishing fodder to eat. Uh, sheep are absolutely helpless without a shepherd. A sheep is one of the greatest illustrations of why uh, Darwinian evolution is a fallacy, because sheep can't exist without shepherds, period. And so there's no reason a sheep would ever be the one who, sur- who exhibits the survival of the fittest. A sheep is never the fittest. And without a human being to take care of a sheep, sheep would not survive. They wouldn't last. So the next time you're involved in a, some sort of uh, conversation over creation and evolution, now you've got something, a little extra ammunition. Now over here in this column, we're going to have the pastor. Now I'm going to draw a circle here. Actually, I'm going to overlap these two circles. And here you have various things that a, that a pastor is going to do to a congregation. Now, what we have to decide is of all the various responsibilities that a shepherd is engaged in and, and towards a sheep, what is the point of analogy? What is the commonality? What's this little 
shaded area here in the middle that's going to point out that point of analogy that's the point of the metaphor because obviously pastor's not going to going to come out there and don't, trust me I'm not going to go around and pick ticks off your body or anything else so what's that commonality because that's the emphasis in the in the metaphor and it has to do with two things first of all feeding or nourishment and we see that emphasis in scripture in John 21, when Jesus tells Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. So that's the primary role of the pastor to the congregation is to provide nourishment, and that comes through the teaching of the Word of God. Second, we have leadership. It is the pastor who leads the congregation. It is through the pastor that God is going to provide a vision, and I don't mean in a mystical sense, but a vision for the purpose for that local church and the direction of that local church. So these are the two areas. And when you have the term pastor hyphen teacher, and in the Greek of Ephesians 4.11, that's a hendiadus, the term pastor is restricted and defined by the second noun, teacher. He leads and he nourishes through his teaching. So that is inherently a position of authority. But what I like to do when I emphasize authority, whether it's the authority of the husband in the home or parents in the home, is I like to focus on the positive aspect and that is the aspect of leadership. So Diotrephes wants to be the leader, and he's rejected the leadership of the Apostle John, which takes tremendous amount of arrogance. So Diotrephes is operating on the arrogant skills of self-absorption, self-indulgence, self-justification, self-deception, and self-deification. He is setting himself up as the man in the congregation. Now, what we have to remember here is that arrogance is the natural orientation of the sin nature. It is the natural orientation of your sin nature and my sin nature, so that the instant you're out of fellowship, you're operating on arrogance. Now, arrogance is crafty. Arrogance is subtle. Arrogance is deceptive. So that uh, one thing that we don't want people to think is that we're arrogant. So we try to cloak that arrogance in all kinds of pseudo-humility and uh, pseudo-love. Uh, that is really just another way of getting and bringing attention to to ourselves. So the main principle is that arrogance is a natural orientation of the sin nature. And second, that it's the orientation of every unbeliever and every believer out of fellowship. So this is diatrophies. Now, when you're arrogant and you're operating on your own sin nature, the one thing you hate is for someone to keep you from pursuing your own arrogant goal and direction. So as soon as somebody starts getting in your way and starts keeping you from doing what you want to do, then you're going to react against them. And this is what happens with diatrophies in verse 10. And he reacts 
with sins of the tongue, malicious words, slander, gossip. He starts running down John. He's too far away. You don't need a pastor that's 20 or 30 miles away that only makes it over here once a month or once every couple of months. Uh, he's old now. He's in his 90s. He doesn't know what he's talking about anymore. He's divorced from the uh, modern generation. He doesn't know how to relate to people. Uh, he ran him down with all kinds of malicious words. And furthermore, we're told in verse 10 that uh, he wasn't content with that, but he would not receive the brethren. He starts to isolate himself, and he, this is typical in those who claim that they are the only source of truth. We don't need to be involved with them. He doesn't say it the way I say it. He doesn't do it the way I do it. And so he would not receive the brethren in contrast to Gaius who would. And he, in fact, those who wanted to support these missionaries uh, were put out of the church. He was not going to put up with anyone who didn't see it exactly the same way he did. So John sets up this contrast between two different people, and they are both believers. This is something that we must understand. They are both believers. Gaius is a spiritual believer, advancing to spiritual maturity, and Diotrephes, Diotrephes is a carnal believer operating on arrogance and proceeding down the path of reversionism. So now John is going to come to his conclusion in verse 11, which is a practical mandate to the readers. There in verse 11 he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. So right there he is contrasting these two individuals. Gaius is called good. And the word that he uses here in the Greek is agathos. A-G-A-T-H-O-S. And agathos has the idea of intrinsic good. And in this context, it is what we would call divine good. That is uh, operation of whatever you have, uh, production or character or Christian service that is done under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So that's divine good. In contrast, you have evil. Evil here is then indicating the operation of the sin nature, and the sin nature is going to produce either human good or personal sins. Now, the trouble is when you get somebody who's arrogant and they're operating on human good, they're going to be a very kind wonderful person sometimes. They're going to seem to be um, something that they're not. And there's nothing more difficult than to run into somebody operating on, on carnality who is at their uh, core of their being in rebellion against authority and they're in rebellion against uh, 
the word of God, but they don't want anybody to know that. So they, they're going to wrap themselves up in the appearance of being uh, very positive. They'll use a lot of Christian words and Christian terminology. They'll be going to church every week, and, oh, they're the first one there to volunteer for something. But at the very core they're in, of, their, of their being, they're involved in carnality, and they're functioning on human good. This is what most what happens in most churches around the country every single Sunday. You just have a whole lot of Christians who are there operating on human good. They're in carnality. They're in rebellion. And yet they just seem to be such wonderful, nice, generous, kind people. It's all a cover-up for the horrible arrogance that is uh, motivating their life. So we see the command here. In verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil. That is, don't follow the example that Diotrephes is providing, but imitate that which is good. And see, this is the illustration of Gaius. Now, we have to understand a few things here about the basic uh, uh, thrust of this passage in terms of the basic grammar. He addresses it to his friend Gaius, who has been called the Beloved four times in this epistle, in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, and verse 11. And then he provides a prohibition in the form of a present middle imperative from the verb mimeomai. The present middle imperative from the verb mimeomai. This is the word from which we get our English mimic, M-I-M-E-O-M-A-I. Now this root here, this phoneme, M-I, is our M-I-M actually is the root for mimic, but we also see the M-I in our word imitate. So these are all etymological equivalents. So mimeomai has the idea of being a mimic or imitating uh, someone else. And what we have in the syntax of this construction is a present imperative. And a present imperative stresses ongoing or continuous action. It emphasizes something that should be a standard operating procedure in the life of a believer. This emphasizes an ongoing uh, character trait, that the believer is to imitate that which is, uh, or is not to imitate that which is evil, but is to imitate that which is good. So there's a prohibition a negative here, prohibition, and a positive. And the prohibition is to don't, is to not imitate what is evil, but to imitate what is good. Now, see, the sinful, the, the sin nature gravitates towards that which is evil. It's easy for us to follow the example of someone who is involved in arrogance, someone involved in carnality, especially if that person has an area of weakness or an area of strength that is similar to our own. 
And if that person is in leadership, it's even so much worse because then we use their behavior to justify our own actions, even when we know that it's, that it's not right. And this is why it is so important for leaders in terms of their character. This is why you have certain character qualifications for pastors and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 is because character does matter, especially in a leader. Whether you like it or not, people are going to put their eyes on leaders. People are going to put their eyes on people. And to some degree, you have to at least reach a sort of a minimum level of of behavior. That's why a pastor is to be a man who is above reproach. That doesn't mean he is sinless. Every pastor I know has a sin nature. And I have the privilege of knowing a lot of pastors a lot more intimately than many of you. Now, some of you know me fairly well. Most of you do not know me fairly well. I have been around a lot of pastors. I've been around men who influenced me greatly when I was younger. Uh, and these men have been in the ministry all their lives, yet I don't know them that well. I haven't spent that much time uh in, in relaxation type scenarios with them. That's when you really get to know somebody. It's when you're just sitting around the house or you're just, you're, you go out hunting with somebody or, or you're working on a project together and, and you're relaxed. And I know other men, uh, where I've had, uh, more intimate, uh, contact with and, and you realize that, that pastors aren't any different from anybody else. I mean, there are pastors who have trends towards lying. There are pastors who have trends towards anger. You have pastors who have, have trends towards sexual lust. You have pastors who have all kinds of different trends because they have sin natures just like everybody else. And the point is that before you can become a pastor or a leader in a local church, you need to reach a certain level of maturity so that at least the more extreme manifestations of your sin nature are under control of God the Holy Spirit spirit and uh, less manifest, but that doesn't mean that you may not fail miserably at one time or another, and that's why we all have to operate on grace orientation and humility, and we have to recognize that uh, that the pastor, the leader, or the Sunday school teacher who or whomever is going to fail at times, and we're not to imitate those failures. We're not to use their failures to justify our own sin nature. Now, in the passage, John says, do not imitate what is evil. Uh, that is uh, the Greek word kakos, which is just a general word for evil, which can include sin, and it can also include what we define as human good. But instead, uh, imitate that which is good, and that's the Greek word agathos. Then he goes on to say in the next phrase, he who does good. And here we have a compound word from the Greek agathos for good plus the verb poieo. And it looks like this, agatha poieo, A-G-A-T-H-A-P-O-I-E-O. Agatha poieo. Agatha means good from agathos, and poieo is simply the uh, verb for to do, to make, or to uh, manufacture. 
So John says, he who does good, and remember the good here is divine good. So he says, he who does good is of God. And we have this genitive phrase, of God, in the English, but actually in the Greek, it's not simply this form of the noun, theu, the O-U being a genitival ending, but it's preceded by a preposition, E-K, ek, meaning from the source of God, ek to theu, from the source of God. He who does good is from the source of God. Now, some people would say, well, that means this is a believer. But that would be wrong. This is not talking about a believer versus an unbeliever. And we've seen this, and this is clear from another number of other passages in the Scripture. For example, 1 John 3, 7 and 8, another similar but controversial passage, where John says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices, and we exegeted that and said it's literally he who does righteousness, poieo there, he who does righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. And many people go to that passage and think that, well, that's a contrast between believer and unbeliever. But what we read is, by looking at the usage of this terminology in the context, is that John is saying that the person who is who does righteousness is righteous. He's a believer who's operating on the power of God, the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and so God is producing righteousness through him. And the believer who sins is living as if he is a child of the devil. And this is uh, clear from various other passages. Now, the, fr- the idea of doing good is also expressed in a couple of other passages. For example, in Luke chapter 6. Hold your place in Third John, and let's go to Luke chapter 6. And this is a passage where... Our Lord is going to connect this verb, agathopoieo, to impersonal love. There he says in verse 32, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? It's real easy to love people who are kind to you, generous to you, people who support you, people who are attractive. What credit is that for even sinners? And in the passage here, that's a contrast between believer versus unbeliever. Even unbelievers love those who love them. And if you do good, that's our verb, agathopoieo, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you for even sinners do the same? And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. And then the conclusion, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. See, that's when it enters into the realm of being unselfish. There's no arrogance there. It's not, you're not trying to get something from somebody. You're not being kind to them because of what you're going to get back. You're going to love your enemy. He's going to treat you spitefully and harshly. You're going to do good because it's good, because you're operating under the filling of God the Holy Spirit and operating from a uh, position of virtue. 
and you're going to lend even though you know you're never going to get paid back. And the conclusion is your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. That is, you're exhibiting your family characteristic as a member of the royal family of God. It is not saying that you will be, because you do these things, you'll be sons of the Most High. It is stating that you will be manifesting your position as a member of the royal family of God because he is kind and, and uh, uh, for he is kind and for he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. The model there is that God is always gracious to those who are ungrateful and those who are evil. Conclusion, Luke 6.36, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. This is what we see manifest in the life of Gaius and in the life of the mature believer as they are operating on grace orientation and impersonal love for God. Another example of this is found in 1 Peter 2.15 and 1 Peter 2.20. 1 Peter 2.15 reads, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Doing good there is the operation of divine good. It is applying doctrine, not responding or reacting to people because of the harsh or negative things they do to you, but treating them as God would treat them in love, kindness, and generosity, and as such you silence their ignorance. These are foolish men who are hostile to the truth and persecuting believers. 1 Peter 2.20 states it again, For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? In other words, if you're punished for doing wrong, well, we all expect that. And then uh, Peter goes on to say, But when you do good and suffer, that is, when you do intrinsic good, when you're operating under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and you are doing that which has eternal value as divine good, and you suffer for it and take it patiently, That is commendable before God. That has honor before God. So the idea here is the idea of a believer who is operating under the filling of the Spirit and manifesting his position as a member of of the royal family of God versus someone, a believer, who is not, who is operating on uh, sin nature. He is operating as one who has not seen God. He who does evil has not seen God. And we have done a study of this several times. It's related to the same concept of uh, that we saw with Philip in John chapter 14, when Philip said to the Father, I mean, said to the Lord, show us the Father. And our Lord said, have I been with you so long, Philip, that you don't know me? The idea of seeing someone or knowing them are, are often synonymous uh, verbs in the New Testament. And Philip points out the fact that you can be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and not know God. You can be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you haven't seen him. This is a seeing or a knowing of God that is based on walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And we see this same kind of usage and contrast throughout throughout the uh, Johannine epistles. Now, this brings us to the doctrine of the role model. Doctrine of the role model is indicated by the verb uh, mimeomai. What are we to imitate and what are we not to imitate? 
Point number one, many times Paul makes the statement to imitate himself. He makes a statement to, quote, imitate me. However, there is a restriction on that. Paul is not saying, imitate me in everything that I do. We know from various examples in Acts that Paul got out of fellowship. Paul had a sin nature just like you and I have a sin nature. And when Paul sinned, he brought divine discipline not only on himself but on others around him. There we go. 1 Corinthians 4.16, and in conjunction with 1 Corinthians 11.1. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul said, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Now, in what area? That's where 11.1 comes in, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. In other words, Paul isn't saying, imitate me in everything I do, including my flaws, failures, and sins, but imitate me in that I have made doctrine the number one priority in my life, and I am imitating Christ. Imitate me in those areas. So he restricts the, the arena of, of imitation to his obedience in Christ. Point number two, or in conclusion then in terms of point number one, we're only to make a role model of another human being in the arena that they are operating in fellowship and operating in obedience to Scripture. We don't make a role model of people just because they're a wonderful personality and a wonderful leader. That leads to the second point. To make a role model out of yourself, which is what Diotrephes was doing, is nothing more than arrogance. This is known as role model arrogance, where we either make a role model out of ourselves or we make a role model out of someone else. Role model arrogance always develops into inordinate competition and an intensification of the arrogant skills. Sometimes you see this in churches. There's a good-natured competition because people in the congregation love their pastor, and they think their pastor is better than the next pastor. But there are a lot of pastors who are teaching doctrine today, and no one of us is better or superior than another. We have different talents, different abilities, different personalities, but we're all teaching the truth. Where you get inordinate competition is where one person tries to build up their pastor or their church over another by running down another pastor or another congregation. Now, there are negative congregations out there. They're not following the truth. There are pastors out there who are in carnality, and they're using their position for their own benefit. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I've seen cases where you have... Uh, Churches. In fact, I know of one situation where there was actually a, a person in one congregation told a pastor of another congregation that, well, now that we've gone through a little difficult time at our church and things are straightened out, um, there really isn't any need for your church in our area anymore. We ought to just kind of merge together. I mean, that is nothing more than... Uh, inordinate competition based on a role model arrogance because they had uh, elevated their pastor to an to a position of a role model, and that always leads to problems. Third point: 
Second point was to make a role model out of yourself is nothing more than arrogance. That's role model arrogance. Point number three, role model arrogance really works in two directions. Direction one is when you make a role model out of yourself. That's what Diotrephes was doing. Direction two is when you make a role model out of someone else. You make a role model out of a Sunday school teacher, a missionary, pastor, some uh, Christian leader you know, or some other person in the church, and you're putting your eyes on a person and not on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is to be the only role model for the believer. That is what Paul says in verse in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So role model arrogance works in two directions. Now what happens, point number four, what happens when you make a role model of somebody else? When you start elevating a pastor, a Christian leader, anybody to an, a position uh, which they should not have, when you make them better than everybody else? Well, let's recognize this that as iconoclastic arrogance. This is the next step from role model arrogance is you then move up to iconoclastic arrogance. Now let's look at this word iconoclastic. This word icon at the beginning has to do with making something an idol. When you put this suffix on it, clastic, that has to do with tearing down an idol. So iconoclastic arrogance has to do that when you use that term iconoclastic arrogance, it has to do with the whole process of building up the idol, the person you're worshiping, the person that you have, uh, you've blown them way out of proportion and made them the be-all and end-all of Christian experience. And then once you discover their feet of clay, then you start tearing them down. That's the second half. Of it. So first of all, you idolize the person, then you tear them down. That word had its origin in a controversy in the early church when you had uh, members of e- the Eastern Church, the Eastern part of the Roman Empire, Eastern Orthodoxy, would, in sort of as training aids to worship, they would have pictures, pictures of Jesus, pictures of Mary, pictures of the disciples. And then it got to the point where instead of just praying to to God, they had to have their icon in order to pray. And you see this today. You go into churches in, in uh, Russia, the, R- Russian Orthodox churches, or in Greece, and Greek Orthodox churches, and they won't be set up like, like what we have here with pews and a pulpit. What you'll see is just an open floor, and there will be stands with icons of, of Jesus and Mary located, and they will bring candles and light candles to those icons. It's, it, they've become an idol. And so they have taken this picture and they have attributed certain value to it, certain miracles in some cases to certain icons. And so in the early church, there were those that recognized that I, that the use of icons was developing into idolatry. So they went around and they tore up the icons and they destroyed the icons. And so they were called iconoclasts because they tore down the icons that had developed into idols. And so this is a process you see, and sometimes it takes years for this process to go on. So an icon is someone you set up in your mind with excessive admiration. You begin to uh, validate them in some form of hero worship or get involved in some sort of personality adoration. You Usually you're just so grateful for everything they've done for you in your spiritual life that you make them somebody that they're not. 
and then one day you wake up and you see their feet of clay. You discover they have flaws. You you see them lose their temper or they uh, say something or you, you discover some flaw in that person that all of a sudden exposes a sin nature. And usually it is some sin that you're hypersensitive to. You, it's not some sin that, that, that you're legitimizing or you're overlooking or rationalizing. It's some sin that, that you happen to be a little bit sensitive to, and you see that person commit that sin, and now you just can't believe it. Oh, they're so terrible. That person, how can they even be a Christian and do that? And then all of a sudden you react. You go to the other extreme. See, you were in arrogance and didn't know it when you were developing and worshiping them as as the be-all and end-all of the Christian life. And then as soon as you discover that they have feet of clay, that they make mistakes, that they sin, and they've committed, oh, I can't believe they committed that sin. Oh, well, now we just can't have anything to do with them. And now you can't say anything good about that person anymore. You become completely uh, disenchanted with them, and now you begin to run them down. This always happens with people who are subjective by nature and who tend to be very emotional. They make decisions based on how they feel, and they make their decisions based on their own emotions rather than on thought. And so in their own instability and subjectivity, they ignore their own sins, their own sin nature, and the reality that everybody sins, and they start maximizing the sins of other people. They blow them all out of proportion. Now, this is based on point number five, and point number five is that role model arrogance is preoccupation with people instead of occupation with Christ. You're so focused on the person, you've forgotten about Christ. You're not imitating Christ anymore. You're imitating this other person. They're the role model, not Christ. So... We have to remember, and positively now, under point number six, that Christ is the only role model. Hebrews 12, verse 1, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our focus. We have to learn uh, his character, and the only way we can do that is to study the Word of God. Now, there are spiritual leaders, there are pastors, there are Sunday school teachers who have grown and matured in certain areas, and we can look at them and say, well, I need, you know, they really give me a good idea of what it means to apply this particular doctrine in this life. And we can do that, but we have to be very careful with that. I have a very good friend that was very instrumental in my life when I grew up. And when I was younger, I used to think, now, how would he respond in this situation? And as years went by, I realized, as we all do as we grow up, that certain adults that we've, um, looked up to have flaws and failures, and he had many flaws and failures. But nevertheless, in some ways, he really exemplified certain attributes of the Christian life. But we can't put our eyes on people. We have to put our eyes always on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only time that Paul ever tells anyone to imitate him or some other believer is only in the arena in which they're operating under the filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Holy Spirit, and demonstrating agathos, intrinsic good. So we must always remember that Christ is the only role model, and there are times in this earth when Christ's likeness is going to be manifest by other human beings, but we have to be very careful how we handle that.
So how does a person become Christ-like? Point number eight, how do you fix your eyes on Jesus? This is developed through the basic uh, mechanics or spiritual skills that I emphasize again and again and again. Confession of sin. As soon as you sin, confess that sin and move on. Keep short accounts. Uh, not The issue isn't just being filled with the Spirit. The issue is walking by the Spirit. It's the idea of staying in fellowship. John used the word minnow to abide. James used the word hoopamino, which means to persevere, to stay in, to stay under a set of negative circumstances by applying the word. That is the idea of staying in fellowship, not just getting in fellowship, but staying there. And that is a position where growth takes place. That is point number seven. We develop our, our occupation with Christ through the basic mechanics or spiritual skills, confession of sin, filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and the faith rest drill. Now, what are some of the mechanics? What are some of the mechanics? Well, first of all, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says that it is the love for Christ that motivates us. It is the love for Christ that motivates us as we focus more on him and we realize what he has done for us. Then in gratitude, uh, we are motivated to uh, pursue the Christian life and to continue toward spiritual maturity. First Peter 3.15 says that we are to uh, sanctify Christ in our hearts. They're the ideas in our thinking. We set aside, set apart Christ in our thinking. We realize the importance of Christ's likeness, the importance of knowing the mind of Christ, the importance of thinking like Christ thought. In Philippians 1.21, then, when we reach spiritual maturity, we realize that living is Christ and that dying is gain. Now let's look at some scripture how Paul uses this concept of being an imitator. He does so more than John does. John just uses the uh, noun or verb form of this, either one he only uses once, and that's here in, in verse 11. But Paul uses it frequently. In Hebrews 5.1, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God. See, not an imitator of another human being, but of God. First Thessalonians 1, 6, and 7, he again refers to himself, but notice how he restricts it. He tells the Thessalonians believers that you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, in what way were they an imitator of Paul? So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, in the same way that they saw Paul respond by using the problem-solving devices in tribulation. So they responded the same way in persecution and adversity, and so they became an example to other believers in how to apply the problem-solving devices. Second Thessalonians 3.7, another example. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. So Paul is saying we had an example of a disciplined Christian life. 
You needed to follow that. But it wasn't just in the Christian life in general. It was specifically in the area of work. Paul was a, had a side business as a tent maker, which he used to support himself. And so he's referring to that because the context was that after teaching the rapture, I guess some of the Thessalonian believers quit their jobs and just sat around waiting for Jesus to come back. And they weren't working anymore. So Paul said, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. Example in what area? Diligence, hard work, they had a solid uh, work ethic. Uh, then again, uh First Thessalonians 2.14, Paul said, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So in terms of suffering and uh, persecution, they responded by applying doctrine, just as the churches in Judea did. So they followed that example. So when we look at Scripture... The only time that Paul uses the idea of looking at another believer as an example is when that person is producing divine good and is imitating Jesus Christ because it is Jesus Christ who's the role model, not another human being. As soon as you get your eyes on another human being, you're going to be disappointed. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow, but eventually, because every human being has a sin nature, and they will fail. They will fail you, and they will disappoint you. And so you have to beware of role model arrogance and getting involved in iconoclastic arrogance. Now that takes us to the next verse, which is verse 12. Demetrius, this is our third person. We don't know much about thir- about Demetrius in this epistle, but we're told that he had a good testimony from all. That means he must be an example in context of doing that which is good. He had a good testimony, and this, we know, is a key word for John. This is the perfect passive indicative of martyreo, and that word martyreo has to do with a legal uh, witness or a legal testimony, somebody brought before a court to give an example. And so I believe that what Paul is doing here is he's pointing out Demetrius as another, as an example for Gaius. It says Demetrius is one who has this, this agathos demonstrated in his life. He's got a threefold witness as a matter of fact. It says Demetrius has a has a testimony from all. Literally, that good is not in the original. It says, Demetrius has a testimony from all, another a w- witness, so that there are others, many people testify to the quality of his uh, Christian life and his uh, spiritual maturity. He, secondly, he has a testimony from the truth itself because he is, Demetrius, like Gaius, is applying doctrine consistently in his life. And then third, uh, Demetrius has a uh, testimony or witness from John and his companions who know Demetrius and say, we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. So he is pointing to Gaius, to Demetrius, as another believer in his area who is positive to the truth and advancing to uh, spiritual maturity. Uh, 
And then in verse 13 and 14, he closes out the epistle. He says, I had many things to write. This is the same way he closes out Second John. There were many other things to write, but he says, I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. In other words, I have many things to say, but I'm not going to take up time writing them all out because and the implication is that he would be there soon. He needed to come and straighten out the problem with diatrophies. That's what he referred to in verse 10 where he said, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. There would be a face-to-face confrontation with diatrophies. Sometimes that's necessary when you have a church leader causing problems. This is the same kind of situation that Peter uh, was faced with when Paul came to him, when Peter got involved in legalism uh, in uh, Galatians chapter 2. Paul had to come and have a face-to-face confrontation with Peter to straighten him out. Every now and then uh, we get out of line and somebody has to take us to the woodshed and straighten us out. So Paul says, I had, or excuse me, John says, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and shall speak to you face to face. Literally in the Greek it says mouth to mouth, but the idiom is, is translated into our idiom as face to face. So John will come and have some face to face teaching with them. And then he closes with a typical closure in a epistle of this era, peace to you, that is, the idea that from the doctrine that you've learned, from your orientation to truth, your orientation to doctrine, you can have inner peace, stability, and happiness, no matter what trouble diatrophies may be causing you, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how much uh, of a uh, instability there is in the local church because of his arrogance, you can still have peace because your peace, your stability is based on the immutable word of God and your relationship with the truth and not on people. And then he closes by saying, our friends greet you, that is John's associates whom uh, Gaius knew uh, are giving a greeting to him. And then John says, greet the friends by name. Now, as we conclude our study here of Third John, we see and are reminded of the emphasis on truth. Truth was also a key idea in Second John and is a key idea in the first epistle, that the believer is to walk in the truth. He is to walk in the light. He is not to walk in darkness. And we do this through the use of those ten problem-solving devices, the ten stress busters, the ten spiritual skills that we go over again and again and again, is that the way we handle difficulties, trials, tribulations, the way we stay in fellowship is that we utilize those problem-solving devices, uh, confession of sin when we're out of fellowship so that we can be restored to fellowship, the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, constantly using promises, and we did a lengthy study of the importance of using the faith rest drills. We went through Third John, knowing promises, memorizing promises, so that you can claim those promises when you face certain situations in life. Faith rest drill, as you claim those promises, you learn 
to mix your faith with the promises of God. You learn and, and extract the uh, doctrinal rationales and doctrinal conclusions from those uh, promises. And then we go to grace orientation. We understand that everything is based on who God is and what Christ did on the cross, not who and what we are. Then there's doctrinal orientation. We walk by means of the truth. We have to get the Word of God into our soul. We have to know doctrine so we can make decisions and live consistently on the basis of uh, doctrine. Then there's the personal sense of eternal destiny where we begin to realize that Jesus is coming back. First John 2.28, we don't want to be ashamed at his coming. The, the decisions we make today determine our eternal destiny. You be, will be in eternity the, the result of the decisions you make today. And so we begin to live today in light of eternity and not simply in light of our temporal existence. Then we advance into spiritual maturity. Our personal love for God has grown because we understand all that he has done for us. And because of gratitude for that, we develop impersonal love for all mankind. That leads to occupation with Christ, what we've been talking about this morning, imitating Christ. He is our role model. As a result of that, we get to the... uh, final stage, which is experiencing joy or happiness. This is why James starts with that command at the beginning of that epistle. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. You see, James then spends the rest of the epistle. As we saw when we studied James, he takes the rest of the epistle to show what the mechanics are so that you can go through these stages. And when you are a mature believer, you can have joy and peace and stability no matter what the circumstances may be because your stability and happiness is not based on what's going on around you, but it's based on the truth of God's Word that never changes and that is unshakable. Now, next time we'll come back, we'll start a new series uh, next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to go through all of these uh, writings from the Apostle John and to be so uh, challenged with so much that he has uh, reflected upon to such a great understanding of of our salvation, a tremendous understanding of the spiritual life and the importance of fellowship, the importance of walking by means of truth, the importance of abiding in Christ. Father, we dedicate the closing moments of this service to those who are here who are uncertain of their eternal destiny and unsure of their eternal life. Father, right now they have the opportunity to determine their eternal destiny. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith alone in Christ alone, this is your opportunity. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for you. On the cross, he paid your penalty for sin. He died spiritually for every person in the human race. So the issue now is not your sins. The issue is what do you think of Jesus Christ? Right now, right where you sit, you can have a certainty about your eternal destiny. All you need to do is believe, to trust, to rely upon. Jesus Christ's work on the cross alone. And trusting in him exclusively, you have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would just challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.